Hello and welcome to the Deathcast Early Bird Ad Free Edition. This week we are going to be looking at the third and final part in our series, Terror in the West, The Crimes of Gretzler and Steelman. Before we get into it, as always, I have to thank my very first Patreon supporters, Channel and Anthony, thank both of you so much for your support of this show, as well as thanks to the rest of you who have decided to lend support to what it is that I do. All right, now that all of that's out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair. If you are at work, I hope this helps you get through the day. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we had been discussing the mass murder that took place at the Parkin residence in Lodi, California, wherein Gretzler and Steelman had murdered had murdered nine people including two children under the age of 15, after which they ransacked the house and left, checking into a Holiday Inn the following day under the name of W.J. Seams. The early morning hours of November 6th, at an estimated time of 3 a.m., an 18-year-old employee and house guest of the Parkins family named Carol Jenkins arrived back at the home, and although she noted that the lights inside of the rest of the house were on, she thought that if she went and turned them off, it may rouse the other residents. So instead, Carol simply went to bed. Now, at some point during the early morning hours, the mother of Mark Lang, who, if you'll recall, was the fiancé of Deborah Earl, contacted two of Mark's friends as she was concerned that Mark had not yet returned home from picking up Deborah and her brother. And she told them that the last place that she knew Mark to be at was at the Parkins' home. So these two friends drive to the Parkins' residence and discover that Mark's Impala was sitting in the parking lot. They go up and knock on the door. This was at roughly 7.03 a.m., and they were greeted by Carol Jenkins, who obviously had been awoken by the knocking on the door. Carol agreed to go and rouse the Parkins family to ask them if they had an idea of where Mark was. The two friends accompanied Carol within and remained in the main hallway as Carol entered the master bedroom. Read parts of an article from Time magazine that appeared on Monday, November 19th, 1973, entitled Crime, Murder in California. Walter and Joanne Parkin were one of the most popular young couples in the hamlet of Victor. Population 275, a cluster of buildings along Route 12, about 40 miles south of Sacramento. Wally Parkin, 32, ran the local supermarket, giving credit to hard-up 
farm workers and even hiring some of the members of one family that could not pay its bills. When the Parkins began to build their new redwood paneled house, friends and neighbors just naturally pitched in on the job. That is the way of life in that part of the San Joaquin Valley. On Tuesday night last week, as usual, the Parkins went bowling, leaving their two children, Lisa 11 and Bob 9, in the care of Debbie Earl, 18, a neighbor's daughter who had come over to babysit. Sometime during the evening, Debbie's parents, Richard 38 and Wanda Earl 37 and brother Ricky 15, came by to visit, along with her boyfriend, Mark Lang 20. When the Parkins came home, they were all still there, and so the police were later to charge were two uninvited men. Carol Jenkins, a house guest of the Parkins, recalled that she arrived at home at 3 a.m., found the house utterly quiet, and went to bed. It was barely daybreak when Carol was awakened by two friends of Mark Lang, who were anxiously searching for him. His parents were worried because he had not come home at the night before. Looking through the house, Carol walked into the maid bedroom and ran out screaming. Bob and Lisa Parkin were lying on the bed. Each had been shot through the head. Hidden in the closet. Later, one of the investigating deputy sheriffs cautiously pushed open the door of the walk-in closet of the bedroom and found a horrifying sight. Butchered on the floor were seven bodies, the two Parkins and the Earl couple, plus Debbie Earl, her boyfriend, and her brother. Their arms and legs were bound with nylon cords, sometimes clinched with as many as six knots, and they were gagged with knotted ties. Each had been shot in the neck or head with a small caliber pistol. Some had taken longer to die than others. Debbie had been hit by four slugs, her father by five. In all, 25 bullets were recovered from the bodies, plus one from the pillow of Bob Parkin. When first responders got there, they came upon quite a scene. Both of these boys, Mark's friends, were attempting to catch and calm down Carol Jenkins, who was absolutely hysterical out of her mind, and it was said by one first responder, doing laps around the house, screaming, oh my god. The reality of the situation is that, that when the first responders got on scene, they went through the house and quickly discovered the two children. Wondering if perhaps the rest of the members of the household had escaped, they went over to the Earl's house and finding it unoccupied, returned to the Parkin residence. And it was at this point that they discovered the massacre that had taken place within the master bedroom closet. It's odd to me, though, that after finding the two bodies of the children, they did not immediately dispatch another group to go check on the Earl family while other investigators looked through the house. But you do have to remember that this is a very small community. Obviously, the police immediately begin an investigation. They start asking around in the community, spreading out into nearby Lodi, and they learn fairly quickly of two individuals who had been seen around town the previous day that were described as swarthy and underhanded looking. Further investigation led them to the motel that these two individuals were said to have stayed at 
the night of the 5th, which, if you'll recall, Gretzler and Steelman had paid for using a check made out to the name of Michael B. Sandberg. Officers learned that the license plate for this vehicle was RWS 563 and was registered to Arizona. Really unusual for this time is the fact that from this point on, the state of Arizona and California begin to work together. And I say that because, as we've discussed with many other cases that we've covered here in the crypt, many times, especially in this time period of the 1970s and earlier, different jurisdictions have a very hard time working together, even when homicides are involved. That is really not the case here. Officials from the state of California reach out to the state of Arizona, who very quickly return with the information that this vehicle is registered to Michael Sandberg, that Sandberg lives in a condominium complex in Tucson. So not long after this, Police in Tucson realize that the perpetrators of this homicide in California are more likely than not the perpetrators of the string of homicides that they have in the Phoenix area. So an investigator for Tucson by the name of David Arlenes was in the process of updating the search warrants for the arrest of Steelman and Gretzler. So Arlene's goes back to his office only to discover that while he was gone, a teletype has come in describing the nine homicides that had been discovered in the Lodi area of California. And he immediately reaches out to the police department in Lodi and fills them in on the homicides that had taken place in Arizona, the individuals they feel are responsible, and the belief within the Tucson Police Department that Steelman and Gretzler had more likely than not returned to the Lodi area as, again, Steelman was from Lodi. Armed with this information, the officers in Lodi really start looking into Steelman and Gretzler as potential suspects in the homicides they are now dealing with. Arlene provides the officers in Lodi with an updated booking photo for Steelman. Later that evening on November 7th, the sheriff for Lodi holds a press conference and states that they have reason to believe that Willie Steelman is responsible for the Parkins murder along with at least two murders down in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And he further goes on to state that this individual is considered to be armed and extremely dangerous before providing the local media with this mugshot of Steelman. The following day, November 8th, police in California are contacted by an anonymous tipster who states that it is their belief 
that Gretzler and Steelman are more probably than not involved in the slayings in Lodi before going on to state that they knew this because they had been in the presence of both men the previous day. They also receive a phone call from Donald Scott, who, if you remember, was the junkie that Steelman and Gretzler had met in the Tucson area, whom they had taken with them to California and who got out of their vehicle prior to reaching Lodi. Scott informs the police that it, he believes this as Steelman and Gretzler had discussed with him possibly robbing a supermarket owner who lived in Victor, California, whom Scott named as being one Wally Parkin. With that information, arrest warrants are formally issued in the state of California for Willie Steelman and Douglas Gretzler, and Steelman's mugshot is posted all over the news, be it print or on television. While all of this is going on, Steelman and Gretzler had continued driving north, discussing heading into Nevada. They ultimately decided, at Steelman's urging, to lay low for the time being. They end up parking the Sandbergs Dotson in one of those multi-tiered parking garages in Sacramento before going out and purchasing new clothing after which they checked into a hotel, paying in advance for three days. Steelman is known to have signed in under the name of Will Simmon, that's S-I-M-E-N, while Douglas Gretzler, as he often did, signed in under his own name. The following morning, Willie Steelman goes and purchases a copy of the Sacramento Bee, and absolutely loses his mind as his mugshot is staring back at him from the front page. Obviously, this sends Steelman into a tizzy, and he returns to the hotel quickly and informs Gretzler that, hey, we need to get out of here immediately. The two begin discussing ways to flee California. Steelman eventually decides that a woman that they had met the previous day by the name of Melinda Ann Cashula, who worked at a nearby massage parlor, would probably help them get out of the state and reach Florida. So leaving the hotel, Steelman and Gretzler are acting somewhat suspicious, and the desk clerk quickly recognizes Steelman, whose face has been all over the news that morning. And once the two men leave the hotel, this desk clerk contacts the police and informs them that that guy you're looking for, he just left here. Gretzler and Steelman arrive at Melinda's apartment where Steelman presented the idea of going to Florida to her. Now, according to later statements, Melinda acted as though she may be interested in taking them on this trip before turning them down, informing them that she may have a friend in Davies who would be interested in bringing them to Florida. 
So Steelman then convinces Gretzler to return to the hotel via taxi to get their belongings. Gretzler was reluctant to do this, however. Steelman informed him, look, they know what I look like, but they have no idea what you look like. If one of us is going to go back there, it's got to be you. And Gretzler concedes this point and decides to head back to the hotel. Unbeknownst to either man, the police had staked out the hotel where Gretzler and Steelman had been staying, and they witnessed Gretzler return to the hotel, get onto an elevator, and head to the third floor. Officers immediately sealed all entrances and exits leading from the third floor. They did this via sealing off the egress and regress points on the second floor. An officer was inside of their hotel room, and as Gretzler approached, he could hear someone speaking on the telephone from behind the closed door. Obviously, he surmised this was probably the police, so Gretzler goes up to the fourth floor, hiding the Derringer that they had gotten from Steelman's cousin above one of the doors in the stairwell. He then goes down to the second floor and makes his presence known by walking out into the hallway with his arms raised. Gretzler's time of arrest is logged at 10.04 a.m. Upon being taken into custody, Gretzler informed the police, quote, Man, I'm glad this is over. I've seen enough killing, and man, I don't want to see no more. It is actually Douglas Gretzler who provides police with the address of Willie Steelman's location. He also informs them that Willie is in the company of a young woman and has sworn to, quote, never be taken alive as he is currently armed. At 10.50 a.m., 70 heavily armed police officers descended on Kashula's apartment building, and she quickly takes notice of them and becomes hysterical. The police chief then announces via a bullhorn, quote, Willie Steelman, this is going to be your last chance to give up peacefully. Inside the apartment, Steelman becomes panicked and insists to Melinda that this is just a case of mistaken identity. I haven't done anything. When she does not appear to buy what he's telling her, Steelman then threatens to commit suicide. However, Melinda is able to dissuade Steelman from this and convinces him that Look, I'll go downstairs with you. We'll both turn ourselves in. Steelman agrees to this, and Melinda then contacts the police and informs them, look, we're going to surrender, but only if the media is present to record the arrest. The chief of police agrees to this, even going so far as to have a local disc jockey announce on the radio that if Kushula and... Steelman turn themselves in peacefully, neither of them will be harmed. However, they need to exit the apartment separately, with their hands held over their head. Inside the apartment, Steelman begins to 
argue with Melinda not wanting to surrender himself and this forces the police to fire a canister of tear gas into the apartment this creates further bedlam within and eventually Steelman yells out that he's going to surrender and it's actually Melinda who takes charge of the situation grabbing Steelman's gun and throwing it out the window onto the lawn where police are able to retrieve it Steelman then exits the apartment building and is tackled on the sidewalk. Melinda makes her way down shortly thereafter. Steelman is handcuffed and forced into the back of a police cruiser as he shouts loud enough for television cameras, guess I'm going back to Stockton. The police were quickly able to build a mountain of evidence against both of the men. Most importantly, money that had been stolen from the Parkin family was found on both of them as well as inside of the hotel room. And because of the large amount of it, the police were able to check serial numbers and find out that it came from Willie Parkin and that it had in fact been issued to him on the same day of his murder. Police also discovered the key to the Sandbergs front door on Gretzler's key ring, but there was more. Within the hotel room, they found many cartridges to various firearms, a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver that was later linked via ballistics to numerous murders the two had conducted, the Sandberg's checkbook, identification cards, and other items of interest. They also discovered shell casings from the Parkin murder nearby on the side of the road. Upon finding the Sandbergs, Dotson parked in the parking garage, the police found blood stains as well as blood stained clothing and boots along with a paper bag filled with credit cards, uh, personal ID, checkbooks, and other items that linked the two men to numerous other homicides. Gretzler was very open to talking with police in both California and Arizona, offering numerous details that had not previously been known concerning all the various murders and robberies that they had committed. However, he was reluctant to discuss his part in any of them, claiming for a short period of time at least that Steelman had been responsible for all of the activities the two had undertaken, including but not limited to the actual execution of the murders. However, as the police continued to question him over numerous different interview sessions, Gretzler eventually began to reveal his culpability in a number of the homicides. Steelman was a different story, however. He refused to reveal any information to the police and immediately demanded a lawyer, which he was provided, at which point Steelman refused to talk further to police. However, this was not to last. And because of all of this, it leads me to believe that 
Gretzler probably felt some level of guilt over his participation in this series of murders, whereas Steelman did not, and he understood, at least peripherally, that the more he spoke to investigators, the more knowledge that he divulged to them of his participation in these crimes, the more trouble he was likely to be in. However, I strongly suspect that it was Steelman's lawyer who convinced him that, look, they've got you dead to rights, you need to give them something or else they're really gonna come down on you, and more likely than not, when they come down on you, they're gonna seek the death penalty. On November 10th in the afternoon, Douglas Gretzler gave police a full confession, starting off with the crimes committed on Orchard Road, that being the murders of the Parkin family and their various associates, before going on to recount the other eight murders that they had committed. According to Gretzler, he had become desensitized to the act of murder after witnessing Steelman murdering Kenneth Unrine on October 18th, saying, quote, the two were garroted. That's the dirtiest way I know to kill somebody. That's probably why I could take so many deaths as that, because after those two, I was steeled. I couldn't kill mine completely dead because it made me sick, and he was kicking and shuddering, and blood came out of his eyes, and I'm sure he was half-dead, brain-damaged or something, so I let up, and Bill came over and helped me finish it. Upon learning about this, the police then descend on the crime scene where Adshade and Unrine's bodies had been left, and they discover these bodies. It makes the news in California, but outside of that, it really isn't headline-worthy. Steelman confessed to police not long after Gretzler did. However, there was a major inconsistency in his confession in that he claimed to have committed two further murders. According to Steelman, on October 13th of 1973, after he and Gretzler and Renslow arrived in Phoenix, he made plans to meet up with a very well-known drug dealer known as quote-unquote Preacher. According to Steelman, he had arrived to meet this drug dealer with an individual by the name of Larry had arrived to meet this drug dealer and that upon arriving they found the aforementioned preacher, preacher's brother, and another individual. Steelman stated that preacher's brother had killed the drug dealer at which time he, meaning Steelman, and Larry killed the brother and this other unnamed other other individual by shooting them to death. That this individual named Larry had then driven the bodies out to the Arizona desert and left them. However, police 
investigated this and quickly surmised that Steelman was more likely than not full of shit as they could find no description of the aforementioned drug dealer or his brother, nor could they find anyone matching the description of Larry. Further bolstering this was the fact that Steelman had claimed to have shot the two men. However, police checked the reports in Phoenix and found that nobody had claimed to have heard any gunshots during the period of time during which Steelman said the murders took place. Steelman also went on to state that after having committed these murders, he returned to the hotel disheveled-looking roughly 25 minutes later. The two men have now been indicted on murder in the state of California. They're being held. The state of Arizona then indicts them on numerous counts of murder, and they begin a squabble between the two states in an attempt to extradite Steelman and Gretzler to Arizona to face trial. Eventually, it was decided that Steelman and Gretzler would face trial first in California for the murders of the Parkin family and their associates, with any further trials taking place in Arizona at the conclusion of this trial. On November 28th, a grand jury was convened to hear evidence against both of the men, with the grand jury deliberating for a full five minutes before deciding to move forward, stating that enough evidence existed to charge both men with nine counts of murder and kidnapping in the commission of a robbery. Obviously, Gretzler and Steelman are shitting bricks at this point. They are able on... May 21st, 1974, to get a change of venue as it was felt by both defense teams that they could not get a fair trial in the Lodi area. So the trial judge agrees to move their trials to Santa Rosa, California. Both men have been told by their lawyers during all of this that it would behoove them to plead guilty as they're much less likely to get sentenced to death if they enter guilty pleas. Steelman refuses to do this, however. Gretzler, on the other hand, agrees and formally pleads guilty on June 4th. Steelman eventually agrees to plead no contest, which means nolo contendre. Basically, it means the defendant neither admits to nor disputes the charges against them and is often entered in lieu of a formal guilty plea. Steelman did this only after prosecutors agreed not to pursue the charge of kidnapping against him. On July 8th of 1974, Steelman and Gretzler were both sentenced to life imprisonment. The trial judge stated at the time of sentencing that Steelman was the, quote, architect and engineer, whereas Gretzler was a willing follower, something that follows along with what Gretzler said for the remainder of his life, that Steelman had been the driving force behind all of this, and that he, Gretzler, had simply gone along with what his partner had wanted with the judge further stating that neither should ever be granted parole. 
Now, I make that connotation because at this point in time, California did not have a law in the books wherein a prisoner could be sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. All a trial judge could do is recommend that they never be granted parole. And two weeks after this conviction and sentencing, the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, authorizes Gretzler and Steelman to be extradited to Tucson to stand trial for the murders of Michael and Patricia Sandberg, along with the murder of Gilbert Sierra. And on September 17th of that year, the two men are transferred to the state of Arizona, and the court issues a gag order in an attempt to ward off any pretrial publicity and any attempts by the defense teams to get a change of venue as they had done in California. The reasons for a judge to issue a gag order in this type of situation is because oftentimes it is felt that members of the community are going to care more about a crime that has been committed in their midst and are therefore more likely to follow the prosecutor's wishes should the suspects be found guilty and then seek the death penalty. It's felt that people in that area are more likely to give the death penalty as a sentencing as they have been adversely affected by these crimes, whereas a jury in another area of the state who have not been affected by these crimes, really know nothing about it, are less likely to seek the ultimate punishment as a consequence of a conviction on these crimes. Obviously, both defense teams worked vigorously in an attempt to forestall the coming trials, and they were successful to this to a large degree. Opening statements took place in Steelman's trial on July 10th of 1975. Basically, Steelman's lawyers argued that the prosecutors were going to have to prove that it was Steelman and not Gretzler who committed these murders and also began putting into the mind of the jury the idea that Steelman was not guilty by reason of diminished capacity due to an ongoing mental illness. To emphasize this, the defense team called numerous expert witnesses who testified that Steelman was legally insane and therefore not able to control or understand his own actions. Some of these individuals testified that it was their belief that Steelman was suffering from schizophrenia, which if true would render him unable to be held accountable for his own actions. The prosecution countered this by having three expert witnesses testify that Steelman was, in fact, 
legally sane and was simply manipulating the system in an effort to avoid being held accountable for his actions. These individuals pressed the idea that Steelman was in fact suffering from antisocial personality disorder. Closing arguments were delivered on July 23rd. Steelman ends up being found guilty and is sentenced to 80 to 95 years for the kidnapping of Armstrong burglary and robbery. For the murder of the Sandbergs, Steelman is sentenced to death. Douglas Gretzler's trial began on October 22nd of 1975. Gretzler had already confessed formally to his participation in the murders of the Sandbergs. His strategy going into this trial, as outlined by his defense, was to secure second-degree murder convictions and thereby spare the client from being sentenced to death. One interesting piece of evidence that was entered by the prosecution over objections from the defense team was a tape-recorded conversation officers had conducted with Gretzler the weekend after his arrest, wherein he outlined everything that had happened concerning the attempted kidnapping of Armstrong, the stealing of his car, and then the discussion between himself and Steelman that they needed to procure another vehicle in order to avoid detection by law enforcement, thus bolstering the prosecution's contention that the murderers of the Sandbergs were in fact premeditated. On November 15th of 1976, almost a year after his trial had begun, Douglas Gretzler is sentenced to 20 to 50 years for burglary, robbery, and kidnapping, along with being sentenced to death for the two murders. Obviously, both men are going to vigorously attempt to have their convictions and sentences overturned, on appeal, however, this is not going to happen. They end up being sent to Florence State Prison, where Steelman was noted to be a troubled inmate. In his records, it shows that he had numerous infractions against him, as well as altercations with guards and other inmates. Discussing the crimes Steelman stated at one point, maybe it kills the only piece of morality in you. It could have been my own mother, and I don't think I would have felt anything. Kids, anybody, I've stopped feeling anything. There's something dead inside of me. Steelman really went to great lengths during his incarceration to show that he was insane, claiming to have been... A Jewish child raised by Japanese immigrants. Uh, he had been a Vietnam veteran. That he had killed both the Parkins and Sandberg families due to their involvement in narcotics trafficking. And a slew of other nonsense. In 1983... 
Willie Steelman was diagnosed with advanced cirrhosis of the liver and informed by doctors that he likely had less than three years to live. Steelman seemed to take some solace in this, telling acquaintances as well as reporters that because of his physical health, he was going to beat the state and they would not be able to carry out their sentence against him. And this turned out to be the case as Willie Steelman was found unresponsive on the floor of his cell on August 7, 1986. He was rushed to a nearby hospital where he died that afternoon. Obviously, the families of Steelman's victims were not happy about this, with Patricia Sandberg's father, Robert, stating, It annoys me that he died of natural causes before he could be executed. He had been condemned to death at every level. I regret it's such a long, drawn-out process with so many chances of appeal that he died of natural causes before he could be executed. And I cannot say that I disagree with Patricia Sandberg's father's sentiments. Douglas Gretzler initially followed Steelman's example and was noted to be a disciplinary problem who shunned all contact with media, family, and other inmates, although eventually it was stated that he became a model prisoner. By the early 1980s, Gretzler claimed to have seen the era of his ways and to feel genuine remorse for the crimes he had committed, going so far as to reach out to both his family as well as to the victims' families, wherein he expressed his remorse and asked for forgiveness. Whether or not this is true is really inconsequential. By 1998, Gretzler had decided that all of the appeals that he had pending, they needed to cease and he needed to be held accountable for his crimes. He informed his attorneys of this as well as members of his family. On June 3rd, 1998, Douglas Gretzler was executed by lethal injection at Florence State Prison at 3.11 p.m. Gretzler requested that he be allowed to wear his glasses at his execution so that he could look the family members of his victims in the eye as well as his family. This was granted with Gretzler's final words being, from the bottom of my soul, I am so deeply sorry and have been for years for murdering Patricia and Michael Sandberg. Though I am being executed for the crime, I apologize to all 17 victims and families. Afterwards, Gretzler is said to have spoken to his sister, who was present in Romania, in telling her that he loved her, as well as his two grandchildren. Ending with... Quote, thank you for life's lessons learned. was also said that as the drugs were administered to Gretzler, he repeatedly mouthed to his family members that he loved them before succumbing to the narcotics pumped into his body. 
that is the end of the crimes of Douglas Gretzler and Willie Steelman. I hope that you have enjoyed this particular series. So that is the end of this week's case. I hope that you guys have enjoyed listening to this particular tale. Again, it's not a case that most people have heard of, and it's one of those cases that even if they have heard of it, because it has not been widely reported on or covered in various forms of media, is oftentimes forgotten. Until next time, my Deathcasters and Deathcasterettes, stay morbid!